0: smoke anyway, it gives ushers jobs, and if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater.
1: Thank you very much for listening to try love a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the trial cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at TryLovePodcast. podcast. You can find the trial on at trial cinema and you can get tickets to upcoming showings at trilon.org. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus.
2: I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH.
3: I'm Harry. You can find me at Shataki Harry.
2: And
1: joining us again is, uh, would you call yourself a heist movie ex- aficionado extraordinaire? What, what? How do you want me to introduce you here?
0: <laughs> enthusiast, maybe is the is, all right is, is heist best, movie. Yeah. Best heist movie
1: enthusiast, uh, <laughs> Matt Clark. Thank you so much for joining us again, Matt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm stoked to talk about this one.
1: Really, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it was a first time for several of us. Um, and I think you might be the first uh, or, or the only one of the group who's seen it more than once. So uh, let me give a quick Aaron Grossman summary. He is uh, absent from this episode. Um, uh, this is, of course, uh, the Lavender Hill Mob, a 1951 Ealing Studios production, again, starring Alec Guinness. Uh, I think he's been the like the one constant, aside from the studio, in most of the movies we've covered from from this series, Playing at the Trial Line. Uh, But of course, uh, Alec Guinness plays Mr. Holland, a... a, a, a man who's disenchanted with his job of watching over delivery of gold bars for banks. Um, Over the years, he sort of devises a a master plan to steal up to a million pounds worth of these gold bars. Uh, Just using his expertise. uh, He has shown no, no indication of uh, going rogue before of breaking bad. So he's in a good position to, to strike. Uh, He just needs a way to get them out of the country um, because it's very hard to smuggle gold bars. Uh, He meets through uh, uh through his landlord, who is leasing a new apartment to uh I forget his name, Mr Pendleberry. Mr. Pen- Mr. Pendlebury. thank you. Mr. Pendlebury uh casts souvenirs uh in the shape of various London and Europe uh milestones and, and monuments. And uh and he sort of that triggers his mind to um put together a plan to smuggle them out by Uh, casting them as souvenirs and right under customs enforcement's nose. Uh, Of course, they need to round up a posse, uh, the eponymous Lavender Hill Gang, to pull it off. Uh, Not everything goes quite as right, uh, quite right. Um, And then the last 30 minutes of of the movie or so is sort of uh, a long-winded way to watch the I guess this
3: is editorializing you're editorializing this okay I, I am, I am. my apologies
1: that is uh that's not something that Aaron does he he scripts his out though i'm I'm trying to um trying to trying to measure up to the best not so easy uh, is it it really isn't uh so anyway that the climax of the film is the heist uh and then the remainder of the film is sort of the um what's the word I'm looking for just like the aftermath the sort of repercussions the of of what happens there um so I'll uh, give each of you a little bit to talk about uh, the things you liked and didn't like. We're going to start with Cody Harry, and then we're going to let Matt take it away.
2: Cool. Um, wow. First up, a lot of pressure here. I don't want to set uh, a bad tone for the episode or anything, so I'll be Oh, it's already uh, set. Don't honest worry. and diplomatic. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that summary. Trust me. Um, just kidding. You did great. Uh, honestly, uh, Lavender Hill mob. I enjoyed my time with it. Well enough, I think, um, of the Ealing films that we've talked about so far, uh, this may have engaged me the least out of all of them. Maybe. Um, I'm still digesting it, admittedly and honestly. Um, talking with you all about movies helps uh, shape and uh, you know enhance my opinions in some ways. So I'm glad we get the chance to talk about it. But it wasn't for any grand reasons uh, necessarily. Just a lot of little choices that sort of um, you know, maybe lowered the ceiling for me. Uh, framing the movie as a flashback was sort of a weird tone to get off on. Um, I didn't think that was entirely necessary. Um, the fact that you know, uh, Lackery and Shorty, if I got those names right, um, two of the guys who take part in the heist just kind of get dropped off, um, unceremoniously. Um, and the so that felt weird. The twenty minutes immediately following the robbery, I. <laughs> had no clue what we were uh, supposed to be ramping up to. Um, So just a bunch of little things. And I I guess to this movie's credit, and I don't know if this is a hot take or not, um, the last set piece with the the chase sequence, um, while very goofy and madcap, gave me a glimpse at what this movie could have been and maybe should have been. You know, something like dynamic and almost blues brothers esque. Um, I'm not a blues brothers uh, enthusiast. So um, anybody can call me on that if they want to. That's just the immediate vibe I got um, like very, you know, the, the action directing um, and the choreography in that chase scene felt uh, like a tone appropriate for a movie like this. Um, and it may be a little upset more the movie wasn't just like that. Um, but there were things, you know, to like Guinness is at least solid there are some other fun and fine scenes and audrey Hepburn has one of her first big screen appearances uh in this movie so it wasn't all bad by any means
1: i thought that i was hallucinating when i saw her face that's in the opening scene right
2: yep yep yeah that like 20 yeah. seconds uh chiquita i believe her character's credit uh credit
1: all right thanks for bringing that full loop uh harry give us your rundown
3: Yeah, it's interesting to hear Cody's opinions. I think I kind of had an inverse relationship with this. Um, I think that the first two acts of this movie are possibly the most I've enjoyed any of the Ealing movies that we've watched so far. Um, I found the relationship between Dutch and Al at the heart of this movie to be really, um, really fun to watch and and really um, uplifting uh, and, and cute. Um, I thought that the class politics at the heart, the sort of really unabashed, especially for 1951, um, class politics at the heart of Dutch's motivations um, and later Al's motivations and the way that they find friendship through um, essentially class solidarity um, to be really uplifting and compelling. Um, And I found the scenes that set up the heist Um, which are always my favorite scenes in a heist movie. So maybe this is just a personal opinion, but I found those really clever and really fun to watch. And I thought that the characterization that ran throughout those scenes was um, really well done. Um, And this movie lost me kind of in the third act, um, which Cody, you had said was sort of your favorite part, which I found interesting Um, for me. Once they got to, once they actually got to Paris and, and, after the the heist was pulled off and they were chasing these girls to get their um gold casts of the eiffel tower back and then in that final car chase which admittedly as the climax worked uh relatively well for me and i i thought it was really cool to see 1951 um paris in that way um or i i guess they were back by then uh anyway that worked for me all right but i thought that it kind of felt like the script fell off a little bit for me in the final act, which was frustrating um, because I really enjoyed the characters that had been set up to this point. Um, But I'm really interested to hear how Matt felt about it. So you can go ahead, Matt.
0: Sure. Um, I think, I think this is a movie that I've always liked. Um, It definitely gets across that sort of uh, (laughs) spirit of mild anarchy that uh, the Ealing comedies are sort of known for. Um and I and I think it actually has grown on me with the repeat viewings. I think sort of um I like that you brought up the class solidarity, Harry, because um I think one of the things this does well is it's sort of like like every heist movie is sort of about our aspirations to get away with stuff and like, you know, kick against the system. But like this one is very much about like, you know, usually that's sort of embodied in these sort of like wild outlaws, um, these criminals. And in this case, it really is like it's like the bureaucrats (laughs) turning the system in on itself almost. Um, And, uh, and then at the same time, like that, that same bureaucracy sort of like foils them uh, in, in parts towards the end. Um, I can actually sort of see some parallels between uh, Holland, the dreamer in this movie and like Sam Lowry in Brazil. Um, And I, I think, Gilliam even cited this as a possible influence
3: there. That's an awesome parallel. That's wild. Right. I
0: mean, there's like a few things because like, you know, at the heart of the movie, you have this sort of daydreaming bureaucrat who sort of aspires to get out of this, you know, drudgery of his his day-to-day existence. Um, And then you have some other, you know, weird things like, uh, you know, the typo in Brazil and you have that uh, R-air mistake on the crates of um gold eiffel towers and this one and the the fact that this movie actually you know begins and ends in brazil is (laughs) sort of the thing that me. this last (laughs) uh, last watching um i also think it's a pretty strong movie like visually i know some of these things were done for economy um and just to make the movie work but like i think some of the framing and the editing actually makes for some really great visual storytelling too and it's not it doesn't really beat you over the head with it but it's definitely something that um, I was enjoying on this last watch.
1: I am really glad you brought up the visual presentation of this movie. Uh, I didn't notice that a lot. several of the Ealing films we've covered so far uh, have been, or the cinematographer on them has been Douglas Slocum of Raiders of the Lost, or, well, the first three Indiana Jones films uh, fame that he has, I'm, I'm trying to pull up the actual list of uh, of Ealing films that he did. He did Kind Hearts and Coronets. Uh, he did, well, he did rollerball for Christ's sakes, just like, I didn't, I didn't imagine that level of talent stuck to this movie. And I agree totally that like the visual, visual presentation from like the opening. Well, one of the opening shots, I guess, where there's a pan in from, or I'm not using the right term, uh, a zoom in from the, from outside, like on a patio to the inside where there's like a, a waiter's little check plate in the foreground is like, okay, that's that's a solid, really solid shot it's more stylized than I thought a movie like this would have been I thought it would have been much more straightforward and almost like we've compared several Ealing films to like um, like stage plays a little bit this didn't feel quite like that it didn't feel quite as stiff there were a lot of moments where uh, the camera is taken to shake or to you know tilt or to just play around uh, that felt really like I won't call it experimental but formatively interesting in a lot of ways that I think impacted my viewing of the film I overall found like Something of a midway point I'm finding between what Cody and Harry thought of the movie, where I do feel like the humor and the uh, seriousness, which are both at play throughout most of the film uh, with humor winning, usually sort of come to a head at the second act. And then it's like it's almost completely serious and very like stressful, intense, almost thrilling with like little tiny interjections of humor, like when they're running down the spiral staircase and they just start like giddily laughing. I found that really like very charming, very out of nowhere. Uh And, but unfortunately, like it just builds a whole lot of tension in that last act. And then the only time it gets really like fully released is the very final stinger shot where he's carried away in handcuffs. Uh, I didn't, I don't think that the pacing was quite there for a lot of this movie. Um Even earlier in the film, it felt like it was, I guess, spending a lot of time on somewhat trivial things. I ended up with a fairly positive view of it though. I I hope since you all seem to have excuse me uh noticed similar um subjects and themes about uh class politics and sort of the relationship between we'll call them the two main characters, uh Pendleberry and I'll call him Dutch because that was his chosen his chosen name. Uh I guess Harry, you brought it up first. Do you want to dig a little more into those?
3: Uh, Oh, sure. Um, I was just going to bring up that real quick. You mentioned the scene where they're descending the Eiffel Tower. Um, Very notably, as in even in Wikipedia, um, that scene... As they head down this spiral staircase, um, they repeatedly look over the edge of the staircase down into the tower below them. And that uses the zoom in, zoom out visual effect that is made famous by Vertigo seven years later, um, which is kind of wild, right? Like that is the Vertigo shot. Everybody knows that shot to be the Vertigo Mm -hmm. shot. And so to see it here seven years earlier sort of belies a lot of the... um, formal interest that this movie has in how it can visually communicate. Um, they do a few really good things with cuts. I'm thinking particularly of the two refineries that we visit in this movie and how they sort of communicate the, um, exchange between those visually as well. Um, and some of the other, uh, exchanges of power and camaraderie between the Lavender Hill mob visually are really good. Um, the, there's a really great first scene when, um, Al and Dutch are meeting one another. Uh, Again, like you said, Jason, those are their chosen names, which is kind of important. Um, And I just, they immediately have this uh, camaraderie for one another and just like a really deep appreciation for one another's like, um, Chosen means of presentation that was like really um, inspiring to me, and it and it made these characters really uh, likable. Um, and I think that likability persists throughout the movie to the point where um, I was mad that the movie ended the way it did. I knew it was going to end that way, right? Because in 1951, the criminal always gets uh, his "quote unquote" just desserts. But I really wanted um, Dutch to get away with it, and all of them to get away with it. And I was hoping for uh, like an eleventh-hour um, twist. Uh, where this had been accounted for all along, the way that we might see in like an Ocean Eleven uh, now, but that didn't happen. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, all of that is to say that I think that this this movie communicates visually the likability and class solidarity of its characters well. And um, in terms of that class solidarity, Matt said it really well, which is that Um, The thing that this movie does that I appreciated so much is it really dispenses with the sort of uh, metaphor of wish fulfillment and wish attainment uh, within capitalism that a lot of heist films are um, sort of slant um, getting at. And it really explicitly lays it on the table Um, like Alec Guinness's character, Henry Dutch Holland, he says early on, most who yearn for it know inwardly that they will never achieve their ambition. Uh, and then he talks about how, but for me, my ambition is literally right in front of me. Like he he has this gold, he sees this gold, um, his labor helps create this gold, right? And he can't um, attain it. And so his life becomes this, like Matt said, this extended daydream about how he can gain this gold and through this daydream he really attains his own self-actualization where like everyone else sees him as this sort of frumpy uh anxious like overly committed um unambitious servant of this bank and his interiority actually runs counter to that but it is only interior right where his boss looks down on him and uh condescends to him the world condescends to him but he has this idea of himself within based on this plan that he has and meeting somebody else who shares these um interior ambitions this idea that that actually like they're not just their jobs they can be more than that um is what prompts them to to take action after you know 20 odd years and i found that um to be that explicit rendering of a class politic in a movie like this especially in 1951 was really refreshing for me i think and and made their relationship make a lot of sense and made the stakes of the movie um really well communicated
1: i think that the like when i was watching the film the fact that al so quickly agrees to the plan and off screen actually like there's there's a cute intimation at what D- uh, dutch is trying to do he's like it would take two people it would take a team oh it's and a that's they, a
3: great scene and then, right? and then they a great like scene.
1: they exchange like eyebrow wiggles and then it fades and then it comes back and they're like okay so how are we going to bust the gold how are we going to get this we need to hire two people can't take any fewer than two people in a posse uh, i just like I think that serves what you're saying, Harry, about how quickly they are drawn to each other and how like perfectly they fit together to execute one plan. Even if Al didn't realize it immediately, like he didn't say to like, like it wasn't Dutch or excuse me, it wasn't Al bringing up the idea, right? He wasn't the one who like said, well, you know, it would be pretty easy to steal that gold if you put it in my, uh, you know, Eiffel tower, uh, souvenir casting machine. Uh, it was Al who came up with the idea, but somewhat innocent, Um, I I guess like what I expected was for there to be a a challenge there for Dutch to convince Al, who was like an an innocent, uh, unblemished, just capitalist, right? And instead, he's, he's very on board with the thing. He just jumps right into the thick of it.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to kind of tie into that and also the visual presentation of that whole thing. Um, You know, first you have, yeah, those two, like how the sort of pieces get put together is shown really well in the visual style. You have the mirrored kind of foundry images and uh, the pouring of the molten metal and, the you know, the fleck coming off. That's great. But then, yeah, the scene of... uh, (laughs) I love that we're going with Dutch. The scene of Dutch... (laughs) uh presenting the plan to al um i mean that's like a two minute take or something like that like it's a, it's a really long shot of um those guys in yeah. kind of different positions in the in the fore and the rear of the shot and you know the camera kind of pushes closer to closer as uh Dutch kind of walks around the room, sort of intimating his. You scheme. can feel it
3: circling, right? I can't yeah. remember if the camera actually circles, but you can like it's you, it's building towards something, and the, yeah. the visual language is building towards that too. And it, it, there's a really great integration there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 really neat. Um, and and just the way that Guinness um, plays it too is is so great. I could just watch his kind of facial expressions in this movie for like you know. <laughs> the, the whole he's, thing it's great he yeah, just got he always has a really glint in his eye it's it's really terrific
1: yeah and the accent he puts on that slightly like demurred very i guess like weak-chinned accent really works for the character all, oh, really he's, well
3: he's wonderful in this movie right i think this is easily my favorite performance of his that he's given in the ealing comedies um and, and just like it his the way that his meekness is condescended to throughout the movie but the way in which we as the audience understand that not only is that meekness not that with which is within him but in fact he ends up weaponizing it which he himself says in the monologue is that like i knew that they that they thought of me as just this um and, like, that's how I wanted them to see me because I've been planning this for so long. Um, Jason, you had said something I wanted to talk, speak to as well, which is that um, Al Pender, Pendlebury in this movie, um, he he could come off as this business owner capitalist, right? Like you had said, and that would mean that he would need some convincing. His characterization is actually very pointedly not that, in the sense that he is an artist, right? And Mm -hmm. maybe not a particularly successful artist, but he is a person who, when he enters the apartment, he has all of this artwork that he's done himself. He has a giant cast statue called Motherhood that he carries around with Mm -hmm. him, that in fact, uh, Henry Dutch Holland helps bring into the state It's Henry, our Dutch's idea to bring his art into the stable. And this art is what um, is their connection to one another at first. It's what attracts Dutch to Al is that he helps Al move this art in, even as the landlord thinks of the art as absurd and frivolous, right? And that's the the cornerstone of their friendship is that Dutch can recognize that this art is important to Al, that in fact, this is how Al chooses to self-identify, is not as the quote-unquote slave, which he calls himself when he's working at his job, but as an artist. And Mm -hmm. even if his art can't be if if his dream to be an artist can't be um, the way that he has to spend his life because of his social standing, then at least it's how he wants to think of himself. And there's a great parallel there, right? Obviously between Dutch and how he wants to think of himself as the mastermind versus um, the bureaucrat. And so like this, this mutual appreciation for each other's self-identification and in return, this ability to extend um, their friendship to one another by seeing and validating each other's um chosen self-identity which is epitomized in the scene where they tell each other their literal chosen names uh henry holland wants to be known as dutch alfred wants to be called al and then they call each other those names for the rest of the movie uh, it's 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 beautiful right like that's a great friendship i these two are like they're like a great on-screen couple to me uh and like especially in the third act when they're They're these sort of like hilarious bumbling partners, uh, which is I think where Cody was going with the Blues Brothers thing. Like it, it really does feel that way, right? It feels like these are these these two cute, hilarious, bumbling couple that that really love each other in like a in a lot of ways, um, and are are aiming for something better, right? And it's so that was like really charming to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's driven home a little bit, specifically with uh, Al's relationship to his work, how. I think, I think it's the scene where he's introducing Dutch to his, to his foundry. And he says, uh, the irony is I have to come up with the casts. I have to make the models. I have to design the things. And he's using his like personal, his passion for art, uh, to a commercial end. Right. And he has like, he's sort of forced to use that in a way that he's not happy with. It's made very clear that he's not interested in his line of work that he would much rather be doing something else, but this is, you know, where his skills happened to fit in the system that he exists in. Exactly. Um, did, did anybody else uh, feel those, those moments, I guess, hitting stronger or um, just sticking out for them?
3: I, I feel like I've already spoken to it, but um I, yeah, I just, I, I think that their relationship is at the heart of this movie. And I think that when it moves away from that relationship a little bit, the movie is weaker. Although that being said, I also really, really like the scene where the, the next two, uh, crooks, Lacquerie Wood and Shorty Fisher enter the picture. Um, I, I thought that. Again, classically in the first act, like putting together the heist family, um, that's just a really great scene. Um, And it it sort of speaks again to this movie's thesis on character dynamic in a really good way.
0: Yeah, um, I, I think it's interesting to me, like how well this movie sort of utilizes what we identify as a kind of classic beats of the heist movie where, you know, they have to, you know, formulate the plan and assemble the crew and you know practice the job and you know pull it off you know all within what is it the first half hour of the movie um the funny thing about that to me is that you know the asphalt jungle came out in 1950 and this is 1951 so sort of the you know the the classic text of what i think of you know the modern heist movie was you know a year less than a year old at that point. And yet yeah, this movie Wild. <laughs> totally captures all of that and, and like pulls it off like really well.
3: Yeah. Um, we should talk about that scene where they, they put the band together, so to speak, because they um, they're under a deadline all of a sudden, right? Where Holland suddenly finds out that d- despite the previous fucking 20 years of work, he is actually being promoted for the first time ever. Uh, and that comes as a surprise. So in the classic heist sense, all of a sudden uh, complications arise immediately and they have to adapt. And the way that they adapt is by catching uh, two new gang members to join them by setting up this basically a sting operation inside the uh, cast factory, which is also a great metaphor, right, of now they're actually using, again, like Jason, you had said, their um, their, their professional roles in uh the pursuit of their actual dreams, which is what the job is all about, right? Because like this is Holland stealing from the bank that he works by leveraging the position that he works. And now they're using Al's um warehouse to succeed in finding these um gang to help them pull off their plan.
2: Uh yeah to go back um just a, a step or two that that impetus for um you know, Dutch and friends, uh, uh I guess just Dutch and L at this point, um, starting the, the planning of, of this heist, I, that was a cool inversion of, uh, to me anyway, of what has now become the trope of, you know, Oh, it's my, my last day on the job, or this is my last case, or I'm retiring on Friday. And then like having that, uh, be the, like the overarching tone. And then you know, this adventure happens, you know, I'm thinking about like the movie seven, there are probably other examples too, where it's, you know, our main character is one foot out the door. And then some shit befalls them. Whereas, uh, you know, kind of, I guess it's sort of ironic, the idea that, you know, Dutch is going to be going from making peanuts to like, maybe a few more peanuts. Um, and then having to use it's a great that joke, yeah. At- you <laughs> use that as the the fulcrum to orchestrate the aforementioned shit uh themselves was um i guess a fascinating sort of irony that was rewarding and i guess the fact that the other like the converse of that has become the trope or the go-to is like it's it's interesting to me that the way that Lavender hill mob went about this is not something that has been done as often although maybe i'm just you know, blind spotting. And there are a lot of examples of this that I'm not thinking of.
1: Matt, I see your hand up, but I'll let you go first. I've got kind of an evergreen thought.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I was just gonna uh, kind of go off that. Like, yeah, um, it's so often, you're right. Like the idea is that, you know, yeah, the character has one foot out the door or like, you know, they, they get somehow coerced into pulling off the one last job, The you know, the one last job. Trope And and this is (laughs) totally different where, you know, yeah, he essentially is going to be, you know, pulled up the ladder incrementally anyway. And instead he says, no, I'm going to, you know, realize my, my dream now and, and just go for it instead.
3: And that's such a great criticism of bureaucracy, too, is that like we get to see the inside of the uh, executive's office at this bank where they're talking about him like he's an asset at the bank. And his boss even says like, oh, the thing about Holland is that he doesn't have any ambition. He doesn't have any drive or ingenuity. He's he's just a cog in the system. And so I guess we could give him more power, but I think he's fine where he is or like we can't we can't exploit his his labor uh, more effectively by promoting him. And then finally, in recognition of his twenty years of job the, at the job, they're like, "Well, you'll make ten more shillings a week, and imagine what you could do with that kind of money." And it, you know, obviously those are played for laughs because meanwhile Holland is like, "Well, I'm about to like rob you for five hundred thousand dollars or whatever." Um, and and so there are really great comedic, um, dramatic irony scenes where his boss. It, repeatedly alludes to like 15 more shillings a week Holland imagine imagine what you'll be able to do you'll be able to go on vacation and uh it the the movie is is making fun of that with dramatic irony but it's also sort of lampooning the idea of like the illusion of upward momentum in general right where, where it's just like these people don't care about you and this business doesn't care about you and so the the movie sort of rhetorically makes you sympathize even more with Holland in a way that I really like because I was already there I guess
0: <laughs> yeah and I think those scenes are then followed up with this great kind of sequence after um the job has been pulled and, you know, he's, he's believed to have been, you know, a victim in it. And then you have this sort of, it's not really done verbally at all, but you have this scene of him being like, you know, interviewed, uh, pulled into offices with the higher ups at the bank and everybody's like clapping him on the back and they're walking him down the hall. And, you know, uh, he's getting, you know, his face in the papers and, you know, and they're they're made to look even more ridiculous, essentially, like, we know what he's done and they're all, you know, celebrating this guy
3: and it, it's such a great role reversal and it it portrays how self-serving the the praise for holland is right because like even when he's being hero worshiped in in the papers for his role in, in uh how he was attacked by these hardened criminals all of the praise is so deeply condescending it all for like flows from this idea that like oh he's such a hero for standing up for the company and he, he's such a, a dutiful um, bureaucrat. And the fact that we can see that from the outside does a great job of showing us like, oh, God, yeah, that is kind of gross that they would treat yeah. a person like that. And it like it really belies the central rhetoric of the movie, which is that like Holland is a sympathetic figure, right? Nobody deserves to be treated this way. And everyone wants to be somebody with dreams and and somebody who wants more and that is okay and like i just i think that's a um a really pleasant uh message to take from this movie um yeah
1: yeah he's i've found I've it i guess i mean and clearly it is intended to be ironic but like that irony of his entire job like his the last 20 years of his life have been dedicated to protecting property to protecting capital and then the only time that he's recognized for it is the time that it like Takes a physical toll on him. Like he, I, I guess to back up in that scene before the one where he's rewarded and praised for, uh, you know, serving the company, he, uh, because his lackeys don't properly execute the, uh, like, the, to make it believable, they're supposed to beat him up and toss him around in the dirt and stuff. He ends up doing that to himself to make the story seem truer, uh, to lend some credence to it. And then he is hailed as a hero, obviously, because he was able to prevent them from taking the entire sum of the gold that was left in the truck. Uh, He was like, he is a hero because he was doing what he uh, just like a a version of what he'd been doing for the last 20 years that just happened to cause him more physical, like outwardly visible physical trauma.
3: Right. Well, well, and the only reason he's being praised that way is because it's good for the company that he becomes their, their face, right? Like they are still exploiting his. Persona. It it just so happens that now it is politically expedient for them to make him out to be this hero because it vilifies the uh, crooks and makes them look very sympathetic. And now the public is on the side of wanting to recover this capital, right? So like it's it's very like uh, sort of Captain America or very like Mister Warbonds in the sense that that it's like uh, it's this really cynical um, sort of gross capitalization on a um, story.
1: Sure, uh, before we get to the part of the movie that w- some of us are divided on, I guess being the the final act, um I want to back up to there's the scene where they of course they have they've set a mouse trap for two lackeys uh, I keep calling them lackeys, but essentially they're they're posse members. they've set a trap by talking loudly and in public about a place that could easily be robbed. Uh, And it is, um, it is Al's factory. Like there's an unguarded safe there. Anybody could come in. They're just talking about it on the Metro and then they lie and wait for, uh, for somebody to come by. Somebody is already waiting there for them. They got there before he got there before the two who were placing the trap. So then there's like this funny sitcom moment of they're like waiting each other out uh, and not really realizing, you know, that, that the other's there. Finally, somebody else comes in. Uh, alerts everybody that they're there and the whole sort of the jig is up uh, moment. But the whole setup of that is very clearly simple sitcom, but it's turned very quickly into, I found one of the like better character moments of the movie where each criminal, there are now two in the room, two criminals. Well, I guess they're all criminals by the end, but two like professional career criminals and Dutch and Al, and they're all just sort of talking and like, uh, like it's a group job interview about like they're comparing the resumes of what it's, so crimes good, they've committed. It's, it's very good and it's like before you know what that scene is doing because again it starts out as a pretty straightforward sitcom setup uh it is like giving you sincere development of of these characters in just such quick fashion just because it's leveraging the situation and the environment and the characters uh to like one i what what I thought was one of the strongest scripted moments of the movie, a lot of yes, it is I think is really well written um and then we go from there into equally similar like again, just like the scene could be i i guess again, to explain a little bit, one of the uh criminals needs to run distraction by driving by riding a bike by the van that is holding the gold, and the other one needs to pose as a painter on the street next to the van so that he can, um, you know, hop in the car and, and take it away. And that is quickly turned into like another, I mean, it's only two or three minutes, the scene, but it's turned into another fun character developing scene because, well, one of them can't ride a bike to save his life. And the other one is colorblind. So he can't be a painter. Uh, so they like, they have to find their, their, their position. They have to find their slot in this tiny little, tiny little co-culture that is the lavender hill mob. And I love how that is, like the, the whole movie is full of those, at least until the last act. The whole movie is full of those where it uses very simple comedic setups to actually deliver genuine, strong character development.
0: Um, Definitely. I, <laughs> I just wanted to call out um, in in the scene where they're uh, setting the kind of the, the bait to recruit eventually recruit uh Lacri and shorty uh the scene where Lackery realizes he's stuck waiting and pulls out a sandwich uh just um, <laughs> he also he's uh, also coming
3: through his own clippings of yeah. the previous jobs yeah, he that he carries them around while yeah, he's so committing good. a
0: crime is too good
3: uh-huh. like, <laughs> he has his resume right there yeah
1: yeah even even the like he has the bus schedule and he's looking at his watch like well damn i guess i'm stuck here oh, <laughs> it's just like yeah. a really
0: funny you
1: gotta pay attention but it's really really quite good
0: my it's also, uh, oh, sorry.
3: No, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to, you know, you mentioned the bike riding and the and the street artist um, just goes to show that like there are elements to Dutch's plan that are pretty ingenious, but he's also clearly like a dreamer who's based this around <laughs> the pulp novels he's reading yeah. with Mrs. Chalk at the end of the night. Like, why a street artist? Why this yeah. bicycle? But it has to be that way for him.
3: It's very Django Unchained, where like Django Unchained is that is that ridiculously um, over the top heist, and then somebody asks Quentin Tarantino, like, "Hey, why did they set it up that way?" And he's like, "Oh, because that character was into that." It's like it's very much that, which is hilarious. Um, my favorite joke of the movie probably is in that scene where they recruit um, Lackery and Shorty, which is probably in general the funniest scene in the movie, in my opinion. But there's this really great moment where they have. Um, they have shorty and they're they're talking to him about, um, well, they've just caught him and he's putting on this act like, Oh, I've never done anything like this before. I have six kids. They're going hungry. That's why I have to do that. And they're like, Oh, uh, that's actually a problem. We need this uh, sort of a more, um hardened criminal somebody with more experience and meanwhile um the bigger guy who is already in their lacquery is creeping up behind um Holland with a crowbar and he's got the crowbar like comically raised above his head getting ready to just wallop Holland and right when they say oh we need somebody with a little bit more experience he just like immediately drops the crowbar and is like oh somebody like me and like they hadn't even seen him they both like <laughs> like flip around right away and and then they they all drop their facade and it turns out that that Lackery and Shorty are both hardened criminals. They have like this immediate camaraderie that is like clearly parallel to Dutch and Al's because they're both of the like black collar criminal class. And they immediately start talking about like, Oh, you were the guy that did that job uh, back then. And I, it, it's really charming, right? Like it was really funny and it really worked for me.
1: Yeah. I think for me, easily best scene of the movie. There, there are moments that like stand out as slightly funnier in context, but as far as like, this is the scene that the movie really that that's uh sort of like synecticizes the whole thing. That's it for me. Um can I scooch into the discussion of uh third act stuff or did anybody have any lingering thoughts about the opening?
3: Scooch Um, away. I I would like to hear uh from Cody real quick. It seemed like um you were maybe a little bit more uh, bored of the the first couple bits of this. Was there something about that that you wanted to to dig into, or just like you weren't feeling it? It it was maybe like just uh, the the characters weren't as sort of um, weren't as charming for you as they were for me, or something along those lines.
2: Um, not necessarily. And I mean, the I think the first half or the first you know couple acts worked. Um, for the the ways they worked in the ways that you all described. And like, I do not disagree with any of those, I guess might just be a a sensibility thing. There was one, I guess there was one bit and it's not really, uh, the movie's fault in retrospect, kind of, um, during the heist, the way that it was framed when, um, and Shorty were like, or rather when Dutch, you know, he had the van and he was, it was transitioning to, um, you know, uh, and Shorty, and then they were going to drive away. Um, that like changing of the hands, where it was like it was very important for Dutch to have been like roughed up, or like for him to be um, displayed in a certain way, you know, showcased to the cops. It was, and maybe maybe I maybe I wasn't paying attention to the right things. It was this weird thing where for like the next five to ten minutes, I totally thought um, like Lacroix and Shorty had just like ripped off Dutch and Al, and like they had gone off book just by the way that they were emoting and how like confused and kind of frazzled Dutch seemed. And so uh, that kind of had me on pause for a little bit. And I guess (laughs) like, I thought that's what the movie was going to be after that. It's like, Oh, you know, uh, Dutch and Al we're dipping our toes into a pool that we are unaccustomed to. And like, that would have maybe leaned more, maybe into more of like the, uh, like the class politics side of it. And like, we could have done some interesting things there. And I think maybe I was just so, like, uh, whiplashed so much by the fact that like, Oh, like they, that was the plan the whole time. It was, you know, uh, nothing weird about it. And, you know, by the end of it, they're all like warm buds. Uh, so that was nice and charming. Um, so all of that is to say <laughs> there was nothing, uh, there's nothing about what you fellows are saying that I like am, you know, throwing up flags against or anything. Sure. Maybe sure. just my own experience of it
1: yeah well uh what else are you supposed to talk about uh, i I really like to your point that it the movie does not uh despite the like we'll say Dutch and al and shorty and lackey uh, lackery sorry coming from two different worlds like they are the bureaucrats and the professional criminals um it never stops to say like oh look at how different these two people are look at what different circumstances they come from it focuses rather on their point of commonality. I think that's where we're coming. Like everybody's uh, shared opinion of this movie is that it, it finds that common point of like, we want to rip this off because it is a large sum of money that like other people don't need. That does not need protected in the way that in the way that it is, I guess. Uh, and it, it, it helps them bond over that rather than call out their stark differences in like profession or ideology. Um, I I think that is the basis of the character work in this movie is that it puts them both in the same place, I guess, with the same goals rather than e- emphasizing differences between them. Um, and, it, uh, and it
3: does, it does so by speaking to a universal experience, right? Which is that is, is being in one life and wanting another or wanting to be more or wanting to believe that you are more than your circumstances, which is a, you know, a, a very deeply um, relatable feeling to have.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, then it sounds like we can move into the final part of the movie, which uh, right after that climax of the money being, or rather the gold being uh, uh, pulled out and it's still in ingot shape has not been uh, melted down yet. Um, Let's see where we were. Uh, Where were we? Uh, Things go wrong during the actual heist where Pendlebury accidentally steals a painting, gets arrested. Things sort of fall slightly off track. Uh, They make it out. But without the criminals um, in Paris, we have... uh, dutch and al uh they're like sort of just coasting uh the the two criminals as or excuse me lackery and shorty as cody mentioned uh are not along with them um because they feel like either the the heat of you know the heat's just going to follow them there or you know they're not really into the idea of going to paris so they actually
3: not- have they have real um like reasons to but the reasons are just like very written in uh and and kind of silly
1: is that
0: true yeah. yeah. it's uh <laughs> Lackery's wife won't let him go to Paris. And uh Shorty would just prefer not to. Uh,
3: he he, he, has he has said he'd rather a watch world. a test
0: match than, yeah, than test make the trip.
1: <laughs> well, uh they end up in Paris without without the two. Um and in Paris, uh, you know, another slightly madcap moment where the one of the shop sellers for Al's goods accidentally ends up selling six of the melted down and recast uh, souvenirs there in the shape of the Eiffel tower, which are sold to six schoolgirls. Uh, Harry mentioned this before and they make their way back to London, uh, on, I think by boat. So there's this madcap chase up and down the Eiffel tower, uh, which has that weird, funny giddy moment, uh, in the middle of the stress and that, uh, contra zoom moment, the, the vertigo shot, as Harry was saying, uh, they eventually end up buying back all six, but the police are on their tail. Um, they were tipped off by the van that they used to pull off the art height, or excuse me, pull off the heist, uh, the, the the final tower the sixth of six ends up with the police they get to um where sorry they get the tower back but they are then wanted uh and just like it is so as you can probably tell from just my babbling it is so heavily plotted that final third that it feels really tough to compare it against the like straight common i, I guess like uh just simple way that the that the beginning of the movie really Really started to unfold. Did, did anybody else feel a little bit breakneck by that time, by like minute fifty or sixty?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it definitely like sort of crosses a threshold from this, uh, you know, the the light light anarchy of the first two thirds into full blown anarchy in the in the last third, uh, particularly mm-hmm. with the chase. I think I, I can see the Eiffel Tower scene. Like that moment of giddiness, and you know the hat and the coat flying around, kind of losing people a little bit. But I also think that's like a pretty good like transition. You know, it's sort of the movie saying like, okay, now we're going. You know, we're going. You know, full Monty here. Totally. Uh, I mean, it's just the 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 entire scene from the. I mean, what is that exactly? It's like like a police
3: fair at a museum where they end up. Yeah, some
1: uh, kind of exhibition, right? It's like yeah. the training
3: it's like the police training academy, and also they're giving some sort of like public demonstration.
0: But yeah, that whole thing is just so like crammed with sight gags and slapstick of the sort that we don't really see in the first two-thirds of the movie.
2: Definitely. And the Paris sequences felt like the movie explicitly transitioning in tone into something more. Uh, like Madcap yeah, and Goofy, um, a, a tone that I a, again, like, I definitely appreciated by the time we get to the final, you know, chase sequence. Um, but I mean, we arrive in Paris, and there are 28 minutes left in the movie, and I'm left wondering, like, what is there here? And yeah. between, like, between the the you know, and I, you know, I I liked the the going down the winding staircase sequence too. I was Audibly laughing at it um, because it was ridiculous. Um, and like, I felt giddy too watching Alleginness mime going downstairs. Um, he <laughs> doesn't like to see that. Um, but I mean, between that and then the going back and forth five different times to try and get on this boat, um, like, again, that, that wasn't quite like it was probably supposed to be funny but at that point it just felt tedious and it felt like we were plotting up to something bigger and better hopefully and we were just kind of sitting on our hands uh in the meantime i will say i did appreciate um the you know we're talking about this group of uh young girls who buy these souvenirs um uh, you know, the, these these plated uh, Eiffel Tower paperweights or whatever they are. Um, the fact that they're just laughing at these two men, um, <laughs> it gave me big jingle all the way vibes when Arnold Schwarzenegger is chasing uh, <laughs> Super Bowl through the Mall of America. Um, so
3: I don't know. That was a flavor I particularly liked. Um, so yeah, my, my issue with the, this part is that this is the longest chasing these six... Um, London tourists through first Paris and then back to London is the longest that the movie spends, I think, in the pursuit of any one goal. Um, Because when the heist is happening, there are all of these sub goals that occupy the action and motivation and goal of any given scene. Um, Whereas the movie kind of like grinds to this long extended halt so that we can have these long extended, primarily comedic in in uh, motive like motivation or, or point scenes about the two main characters, um, Dutch and Al chasing these girls to the point where in my mind, the last third of this movie becomes about chasing down these girls. And that is, I had sort of a reaction to it that Cody had earlier where it was just like, I didn't think that this is what this movie was about. Right. It was like, I was planning on something else, I guess. And it was just like, in my mind, I was like, "How did we get here? Like, how did I get to be watching this movie about the camaraderie between four uh, disenfranchised men who want more, who are robbing this, and it it devolves into this these two men who are chasing young girls through uh, Paris, primarily so they can have." funny scenes it was like it was fine it was just not exactly what i wanted or expected and to have that be the content of the entire final stretch of this movie was disappointing to me um for the record when they get to the police college which is what it was it was hendon police college um that sequence where the girl gives this cop whom she loves uh, her own Eiffel Tower, which is why she wouldn't give it to, to Holland and uh, Pendlebury. Um, and they are just coincidentally going to test it. Uh, and that's what ends up causing this chase. I thought that that was a fun sequence. And I was finally like, oh, OK, we're like we're back on board. Like they had to take this sort of long way around to getting the police to find uh dutch and allen having this all finally unravel but they've done it and once the thing had unraveled and the police were back on the chase uh it felt like the movie again but it just there was like this this weird overwritten overplotted, like 20 minute interlude about chasing these girls that i just thought was like really it felt arbitrary to me and it felt like it felt like the script didn't know where to go in an 80-minute movie. And so they invented this sort of like final set of contrivances to get us to this place. And that stuff was kind of frustrating to me.
0: Um, Yeah, interestingly, I guess the original script for this, um, they sold um, a bunch of different gold Eiffel Towers to a bunch of different characters, and it was going to have Holland and Pendleberry tracking each one of them down (laughs) individually. And they said, oh, that's way too overwrought. And then they came up with this, You know, device of just the school trip. So they would just
1: have,
3: you know, the one group.
1: Yeah, they still try to wring a lot out of that, despite it being like smaller in scope and trying to be less overwrought. They still get a good like 20 minutes out of that very simple plot element.
0: Yeah. And I can, <laughs> I can see uh, the scene um, uh, with those two at French customs uh, being
3: <laughs> right. over long or really frustrating for people. I actually about.
0: do think it's really funny, but um, <laughs> I, I, mean, I can it, see it not being for everybody.
3: It's pretty funny because Dutch and Al are so charming, right? Like, like watching Al deal with these people is great. So it it is still good.
0: Right. And it's like, you know, these are these two guys who've sort of turned the system in on itself. And then here they are still like, you know, having to
3: confront (laughs) confront it.
0: In the end, they can't escape it. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. Good, good point. Uh, my favorite part of the final act there is after I, I forget if it's before or after Al is pinched, but, um, so Dutch and I think Al are, are in a car and they have to go through a checkpoint in London. Uh, they have the, one of the last, uh, uh, one of the remaining Eiffel Tower paperweights made of gold with them. Uh, and it's like they are wanted already, but the word does not seem to have caught up to this specific checkpoint. And two cops sort of escort them through. And for some reason, one of them is singing Old MacDonald Had a Farm. And he like grabs onto the side of the car to ride it and sort of guide them through. And he begins oinking like the like a pig in the song, just like for an extended period of time. And it's the funniest thing because you literally have a cop Singing like oinking like a pig alongside the criminals who are like defrauding them and the system they support directly. I don't, it has to have been intentionally written like that, right? Oh, of course. Like,
0: yeah, I was it's, sort it's of curious about thing. that. If, like, you know, um, if, if pig was in the like modern parlance of the time, it seems like it would not have been yet, so. but I don't know.
3: Got it, hope so. good, right? It's like it's too coincidental. Um, That scene's also good uh, because of what Matt referred to, which is how they they constantly are uh, referring back to systems and the way that systems can impede um, and how systems can be turned to impede, right? Like even during that chase, the way the chase unfolds is that um, Dutch and Al steal a police car from the college and then they use the police um, dispatch radio to, to try to trip up the police and get away um which they had been doing throughout the chase by like yelling oh there's the criminal right to like to try to turn the police and so like even there at the end um during this chase we're, we're thinking about the ways in which the system can be turned around in a in a really fun way and even the old mcdonald thing um is it comes from that because like they had um intercepted like the radio of another uh participant in the the crash that they had caused and that was what was happening with that although frankly i didn't fully understand why the the cop had to sing and what was going on there i don't really doesn't love
0: a bit of music while you're driving i
1: mean (laughs) (laughs) the narrative justification is not as important as the fact that i got to see a tubby british cop say oink 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 alongside a car that's uh that's stealing the state's gold out from underneath him i love that um and then the movie sort of plays from there uh with al getting pinched in london and dutch making it out heading to brazil and uh, and we returned where we started the film uh but he is it's shown who he's sort of like confessing all this to and uh and the man leads him away in handcuffs and the movie ends uh it's sort of ignominious end for what the movie had built to that point um it was was go ahead
3: a a somewhat hopeful one right because like we had seen in the beginning that um, Henry Dutch Holland looks like he's always belonged. He's like the toast of this club in Rio de Janeiro where he's hanging out. He had just given this incredible party that everybody, that all of these wealthy socialists uh, can't stop talking about. And, and he's like really living large. And then we get to see how he earned that money through this movie. And then later on, it even, they uh, have this quote on Wikipedia, which I appreciate, but he he's recounting this story to the guy who turns out to be the detective. And he says, 25,000 pounds enough to keep me for one year in the style to which I was uh, unaccustomed. Right. But like, despite the fact that he was unaccustomed to it, it turns out he was great for it. And that sort of bears out his own understanding of himself, which is that like, if only I had these opportunities, I would actually be great. Right. Like, it's not about who I am inside. It's about the external opportunities. And so even though, like you said, there's this ignominious end for, uh, Dutch's character, he's he sort of comes away with the greater sort of existential victory in the sense that, like, he was always capable of this. This was always his sort of uh, or could have been his destiny, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, definitely. And, and, it, and it's sort of, I don't know, it's, it's really interesting that, yeah, it's, he gets away with just enough to live like that for a year. Like, he's essentially, like, if I get to do this for a year, it's worth whatever the consequences may be. Um, But yeah, I also just wanted to make a mention of um, his, his actual like final, uh, you know, escape move maneuver is so great uh, that, you know, he just, um, as he's running with the stolen gold, he just, you know, assumes anonymity in a, in a, in a tube station and just sort of just, you know, again, like kind of, you know, you know, weaponizes his understanding of, you know, bureaucracy to sort of disappear.
2: Yeah, it was very fortunate for him that uh, every dude in that city is dressed and looks like Oswald Cobblepot. Um, So it's nice that he uses that to his advantage. Well, that's just so
3: good. He he literally just walks down the stairs to the tube station and then out the other side where there's just a crowd of dudes wearing pinstripe suits and then he just joins the crowd and then just walks down the stairs again into the tube station. <laughs> like Assassin's Creed.
1: <laughs> Stop blending in. Nice. Uh, yeah, Cody gets that one. He knows. We know our audience. Uh, oh,
2: that was a video game. Gotcha. Yep, carry on.
1: Yep, gotcha. No, it was a sport. Uh, does anybody got any last notes before we head to that, uh, certified section?
0: Um, I just, uh, again, wanted to, you know, point out, uh, Mrs. Chalk as the old lady who loves, uh, pulp, pulp mysteries and, uh, you know, keeps laying on, uh, the crime lingo (laughs) that she'd learned from those, uh, on the cops. It's really funny. Um, and then I know we mentioned, uh, Audrey Hepburn, but, uh, also another, like, just kind of walk on. Well, I don't suppose it was a cameo because he wasn't famous yet. But Robert Shaw is the chemist who was oh, uh, right. testing the gold. I think that was wild. one of his first uh, movie appearances.
1: Interesting. I didn't even notice that.
3: Yeah, uh, it, both in both instances, it's it's one of those situations where like you want to get your eyes checked. Like like you said, uh, Jason, about um, Audrey Hepburn. I was like, am I hallucinating? It's like that can't be her. Uh, like I understand I,
0: I... that Al Guinness was really like impressed with her already too. Like I think he said something along the lines of like, I don't know if she can act but a real movie star just walked on set.
3: Oh wow. that's so sweet. What a he was baller right, ass line too. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Uh Harry, I think I think you now I need to open are. the gates for uh for that segment called Cody's, Cody's Knowties. Knowties.
2: Wow, thank you so much for that fine introduction. Um, so the Ealing Studios theme put together by the Trilon, has been uh, pretty well dominated by Alec Guinness, uh, safe to say. He's been uh, the lead or one of the leads in three of the four Ealing films we've discussed up to this point. But I ask, how well do we really know this titan of cinema? Uh, to find out, I've put together a little game for us that I'm going to call sure. Smart Alec. What have I done? Nice. Uh, the game itself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I was pausing for applause. The game itself is pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm just going to run through some Alec Guinness uh, trivia, factoids, anecdotes. They may be directly or indirectly related to his life and filmography. Uh, and together, we're going to sort out what's real and what's mo- uh, and what's monkey business about Alec Guinness. You guys ready to jump in this?
3: You're really doing it. Hit, this is- yeah.
2: Hit so, me so with yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so the Lavender Hill mob got Guinness uh, his first Oscar nomination. This was at the 1953 Academy Awards. I know the listed release here for this movie is 1951. Maybe it got picked up in the U S late or something, but in any case, the next Oscar nomination for Guinness got him his only win for a role. Does anyone here know what that movie was?
1: Are we going person by person or just it's, shout it uh, out?
2: For this one, just shout it out uh, if you got it. You know. Okay. Clark
1: I'm, I'm going to say Lawrence of Arabia.
2: Uh, good guess. Uh, it was not Lawrence of Arabia. Anybody else got any? Uh, admittedly, we're starting with maybe a, a steep one here. I don't know how well-versed y'all are with, with this particular movie.
0: But it is uh, one of his
2: bigger ones.
0: Was it uh, Bridge on the River Kwai?
2: Ding, ding, ding. It was indeed nice. Bridge wow. on the River Great Kwai. One. Uh, released in 1957, directed by David Lean, who also did Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, uh, many other works, uh, and a frequent collaborator of Alec Guinness's. Uh, and to, for those who don't know what that movie is, uh, British POWs are forced to build uh, a r- railway bridge across uh, the titular River Kwai for their Japanese captors, not knowing that the Allied forces are planning to destroy it. Guinness plays a lieutenant colonel among that group of POWs. Uh, he's amazing in it, and that movie... Uh, itself is really great. Um, it's one that I try to rewatch every so often. Um, so yeah. Uh, are are the support. next?
1: Was was that the softball of these questions? Because I'm. This is going to be a an absolute dumpster fire for me if if that was the easiest.
2: Um. We'll get uh, get the kindling ready. No, I think I, right. I think we'll. E- each of these is a a little bit different um, format wise, but uh, you'll see that in due time. Uh, the second one here. Uh, on the note of you know, just sticking with the Academy Awards, Guinness was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Obi Wan in Star Wars, uh, and that's A New Hope for any Zoomers that may be listening to this. Um, uh, and I'll toss this to to the group: um, True or false? This is the only acting nomination for a movie that George Lucas directed.
1: Oh God! Uh, I want to say false.
2: Okay. Uh, does anybody have a contrary answer Man, to that?
3: Man, I'm trying to think of who would be nominated otherwise. Yeah, that's a good way to approach
2: it. I mean, he does not have that extensive of a filmography, at least mm-hmm. as far as directorial credits go. So you have a, a limited pool to pick from.
3: If somebody told me that was true, I think I would believe it more readily than I would believe it's false. The that's way that fair. the question is phrased makes me want to say false. False. But uh, I think I will say true because that feels more honest to the way that I would think. That's fair,
2: uh, Matt. Got any thoughts on this?
0: You know, I'm searching my brain and I'm thinking ah. like, well, someone maybe got a nomination for. Uh, American Graffiti, but that was so much
2: of an ensemble film that maybe that didn't happen. So, um. right, if uh, if somebody were to get nominated for American Graffiti, who do you think it would have been? You know, any as far as I mean, I don't remember that movie that well. I've only seen it a couple times a long time ago. Um, Spoiler alert: it is false, and the movie is American Graffiti. Um, But uh, yeah, well, I guess I'm just kind of tumbling down this hill. Candy Clark um, in that movie; she was nominated. Yeah, for Best Supporting Actress, uh, for the character Debbie. Um, And again, just, you know, quick plug for that movie. For those who aren't familiar, it's um, released in 1973. A couple of high school grads um, spend one final night cruising the Strip with their buddies before they go off to college. Um, And it is very much uh, an ensemble piece, as it's been said. Um, It's very kind of in the same vein as Dazed and Confused, as far as, you know, we're we're playing this out over the course of a day or an evening, and we kind of bop around to, to different places. So that's yeah, oh, an interesting one looking back on that garnered that type of attention. But from what I can remember, uh, uh, she was great in it, uh, Candy Clark. Um, so shout out to her. Um, Alec Guinness is good company to be in, I think. Um, moving right along. All right. So the third one here. Um, this is going to be uh, up to each of you as, as individual uh, participants. Um, thankfully, Alec Guinness has his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. What we'll do is uh, I'll go around to each of you and collect guesses for the year in which you all believe Guinness received his star uh, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And just for, you know, re- reiterating some context here, uh, things relevant to what we've talked about and and you know, discussed on episodes so far, Kind Hearts and Coronets was 1949, Lavender Hill Mob was 51, Lady Killers 55, uh, River Kwai was 57, Lawrence of Arabia 62, um, star Wars: A New Hope was uh, all the way then up in 1977. So, what year do y'all think um, Alec Guinness got his star? Uh,
1: Jason, I'm gonna say 1978.
2: 1978.
3: Oh, damn it! That was gonna be my guess. He's an English actor. You got to think that like Hollywood is kind of slow to like appreciate. Yeah, him. yeah. Especially right. the fact that like he was nominated for Star Wars, which feels like a really classic sort of like gimme right Mm -hmm. where it's like well we got to a. it's like giving uh ennio morricone the uh like lifetime achievement award it's like fuck off uh (laughs) but um so i was gonna say 78 jason stole that um when did you say lawrence arabia came out
2: uh that was 62
3: 62 that's what i yeah um i'll say 65
2: all right perfect and matt what do you got so
0: I'm going to base this just because of a weird factoid I read earlier today that he got his um, non-competitive Oscar in 80. So I'll go with 80.
2: Gotcha. The uh, the answer to the question, when did Alec Guinness get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, is 1960. Oh, shit. 1960. Uh, that surprised me as I'm sure it surprises you guys. Um, what was it? In some- what was the
1: movie that had most recently? Re- uh, uh, I mean, he was nominated
2: or he won best actor three years before. Um, and maybe the, maybe the Ealing uh, studios movies like were, were more popular in the States oh, that I'm giving them. Or like maybe, maybe
1: the compounding like press that those movies had gotten in reception. Maybe those kind of added up to it. I didn't think about crap. that. I was thinking like standout things that would have earned him one, but if it's like a body of right. work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I confess I have no insight to how the Walk of Fame works or how and when you get nominated, yeah. I knew you
3: just basically have to be a really big deal, right? And Alec Guinness was definitely a really big deal by 1960. Uh, I just didn't know if he was like a big deal in Hollywood.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's just crazy to think that he was a big deal in 1960 because some of his most recognizable roles, at least over on this side of the pond, were post-1960. Like I'm thinking of Lawrence of Arabia and Star Wars and those two things – both released after 1960. It's wild to me that he already had it. That's when great. was well, Javaco? Because I,
0: mean, I feel like that's the one that
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, was that 65? I'm okay. double checking.
2: 65. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. That was right. And anyway, you have to remember, I guess, that like Star Wars was super celebrity casting for him, right? Like they cast Alec Guinness because like it was a big deal to get Alec mm-hmm. Guinness. And he actually hated that role, right? So,
2: uh, and that actually, not to to cut that short, hey, hey. that actually brings us to our last Guinness tidbit. Um, so, it, it is historically a relatively open secret that Guinness had uh, to put it maybe delicately or diplomatically some reservations about participating in Star Wars, some of which he never really got over, um, despite being in uh, the sequels um, and you know smaller roles. I have here four reported quotes uh, from Guinness about the making of star wars three of them are genuine uh and one of them is fabricated so i'll read them uh, i'll just read them off and then i don't know whatever feels better if you want to do it collectively you know treat this like a a group effort we can do that um and then you guys just see if you can pick out the imposter um so there are four of them here so uh, first one
3: Thank you for for finally coming uh to my, to my home because I don't know very much about River Kwai or Doctor Giovago, but I feel pretty confident I'll be able to hack this one. All right. Well, yeah, hey, don't uh don't count your Guinnesses. Yeah, it's, it's, they, t- it's time you know. to take
1: Harry the fuck down.
3: No, I mean I was, I was trying to take me the fuck down by saying that I'm a dumbass who loves Star Wars and hasn't seen very many good movies, but
2: Well, welcome to my club. Uh the first one here, um <clears throat> I'm not going to put on an Alec in his voice. New rubbish dialogue reaches me every other day on wads of pink paper, and none of it makes my character clear or even bearable. So that's the first one. The second one. The battle scenes at the end go on for five minutes too long, and some of the dialogue is excruciating. Uh, The third one. I can't imagine anyone wanting to watch a stiff upper lip old man for two hours. And then the fourth one. I shrivel up every time someone mentions Star Wars to me. So <laughs> of of those so four, I, uh, three of those are for realsies, uh again reportedly and one of them is n- is not that. So which one is the is the imposter in this group? So um, I I'd need the first and the last one to be true, I think. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> in, know, in, the, in the word.
0: world.
1: <laughs> uh can you read the second one again? I'm having <laughs> suspicions mm-hmm. about that.
2: Yeah, here, I'll I'll read them them all off again, just just so we have those fresh. Uh, First one here, new rubbish dialogue reaches me every other day on wads of pink paper, and none of it makes my character clear or even bearable. Second one, the battle scenes at the end go on for five minutes too long, and some of the dialogue is excruciating. The third one, I can't imagine anyone wanting to watch a stiff upper lip old man for two hours. And then the fourth one, I shrivel up every time someone mentions Star Wars to me
1: i still love that one so much i am going to say uh the second one about the battle scenes and the dialogue
2: okay so that one that one is not that's my guess that's an imposter all right perfect uh harry
3: matt what do you guys think i also think that number two is the imposter because i think that those are the opinions of one cody narvison and not
1: (laughs) editorializing
2: on on my podcast get the fuck out of here objection leading the witness um no that's fair uh and matt what uh what's your pick
0: well you know i'm gonna demonstrate my class
2: solidarity and also go with second <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah
1: it doesn't matter if we're wrong we are the
2: we're in it together wrong. yeah that's, that's right you no know that's good i'm glad to see all three of you go down with the ship the correct answer is actually c uh or the third one whatever convention we want to. so i uh i will concede that is mostly a real quote the actual phrasing of it is <clears throat> I can't imagine anyone wanting to watch a stiff upper lip British Colonel for two and a half hours. And that it was said in reference to his pre-filming feelings, uh, towards bridge on the river. Kwai, his Lieutenant Colonel character. So that is mostly something he said, but about that particular role. I was Um, still like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, go ahead, Jason. I, was,
1: I felt pretty strongly about that one being like solidly real because it was self deprecating. And for some reason, Alec Guinness appears as a self deprecating, like just very humble old man to me.
2: Yeah. Hey, I mean, hey, that's that's totally a fair take. Um, turns out he's just a, a normal curmudgeonly fine gentleman, and uh, congratulations to you, curmudgeonly fine gentleman. You are now officially smart, Alex, though you didn't need me to tell you that. What
3: have
1: I done? Ba-dum-bum. I'm going to find some way to put bumpers, like sound bumpers on either end I of that game. I always
3: suspected, but I'm glad I know now.
1: <laughs> thank <laughs> you again for the incredible entertainment. This, I think you realized, Cody, somewhere along the line that in a lot of these episodes, we were just ending the episode pissed or bored. <laughs> so
2: you, The fact that you found I'm a way. going to work like the next day. Yeah. yeah, we needed something
1: a little sweeter. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your unending support. Um, I think that's where we're going to uh, pinch it off. This has been an episode of Try Love about the movie uh, The Lavender Hill Mob playing at the Trylon uh, this coming week. Get your tickets at trilon.org. Wear your mask when you go outside. Wear your mask when you go on the Trilon. Don't bring any drinks. Uh, do not think about bringing drinks. Um, uh, f- fuck you, wear your mask. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can follow me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. This podcast is Try Love, and you can find us at Try Love Podcast. You can find the TriLon Cinema, which is the mo- movie theater we talk about, at Trilon Cinema across all social media. Um, I'll let you guys do the outro, but uh, I want to do a quick thank you again to Matt Clark for being on this episode. We hope to rope you in for more uh, heist and other discussions uh, in the future. Uh, where can people find you, Matt?
0: Uh well thanks for having me on um and we should definitely do another one at one of these days um mm-hmm. I can be found on Twitter at uh, the Mipless Matt Mpls I'm pretty much Mpls Matt everywhere uh, letterboxed uh you know Discord board game sites when you know if you if you see that it's me
1: all right I will uh I'm going to start creating the Mipless Matt accounts on other profile on like other social media where i don't see one get ready for a myspace account that's going to be forwarding all of these this shitty hate mail to you because i'm going to make you out to be i don't know eco-fascist or something something fun sure like that. please I
0: mean. please add me to your linkedin network <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what I, I might do that uh thank you again for being on uh my name is jason Daphnis. find me at nintendoofus
2: i've been cody Narvison. you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh uh
3: fuck you wear a mask Uh, I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. Um, We should say Jason was just on another podcast called 99 Questions. That just came out today. You can check that out. I haven't listened to it yet because I just had to record this, but it looks great and I can't wait to listen to it. Also, you should follow Matt on Letterboxd because he does good reviews and also like really good suggestions for movies and stuff. Um, I've found a lot of movies that I really want to watch via his watching. So um, that is a good thing to do. Thanks. Tastemaker, heartbreaker,
1: Matt Clark. <laughs>
0: this is what I'm dreaming of instead of my day to day working world.
3: Damn, isn't that the truth? Wow. <laughs> All
1: right, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, rate us and review us on iTunes. I never asked for that.
2: Forget I said that. Uh, Bye. Good night, you naughty men.